Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Welcome to the Bud Zone. Please give a listen as we talk with our buds in the faith about the present rule and reign of our King of Kings and Lord of Lords in his church and over his world. Greetings and welcome to this episode of The Bud Zone. I really appreciate you listening and sharing these episodes. I want to take a moment and remind everyone about the aim of this podcast. The goal here on The Bud Zone is to profile the ongoing work of our Lord in saving His elect, sanctifying His saints, building His church, and expanding His kingdom. We do that by talking with some of our buds in the faith who are the means he uses to accomplish all those things. And today, I am particularly honored to be joined by Will Dobby, who is the author of the recently released book entitled From Everlasting to Everlasting, Every Believer's Biography. Will, thank you so much, sir, for taking time to talk with me. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Well, I want to tell you, not everybody will have any reason to know this, but you and I have been trying to connect for a while on this, and it's mainly been on my pro- my side. I've had technical problems. I've had it here recently as we're recording a hurricane just blow through. Yeah. So uh, I'm glad that uh, we we're finally able to connect. And I have to give a shout out to Keith Foskey, Pastor Keith, who connected me with you and introduced me to your book. You were on his podcast, I think with David Martin, who did an audio version of your book. So Keith, if you're listening, which you should be, uh, but Keith, thank you for, (laughs) thank you for connecting us. Well, let me, let me do this. I want to start with your biography, but all I have is what's on the back cover of your book. So I'm going to read that, and then I'm going to ask you to augment that with all the details that wouldn't fit in the space that the publisher gave you there. So you can that tell us. That long. You, oh, I, well, I don't know about that. Okay, here's what, here's what your biography says. Uh, after serving in the British Army, Will Dobby went into full-time ministry in 2006. He moved to London to plant a church in 2013. In 2021, he moved to the U.S. to plant again. He enjoys running and reading. He is married with two boys. Now, that's like three lines, so we need more like a couple of paragraphs. All right, so tell us Um, what you'd add to that. I was born into a Christian family, super blessed to have godly parents. And um, from a young age, when I was was at a young age, our family got under some really good expository ministry. Um, And that's really what changed everything for us. Just, just starting to go to a church as a family where the Bible was unpacked verse by verse. 
I'm the oldest of three, got a younger brother, younger sister, and I had studied music at college, had an amazing time, then joined the British Army. I was in the infantry, I was in for four years, um, and I was in the Highlanders, which is a Scottish regiment. Yeah. Spent most of my time in Germany, got to spend a bit of time in places like Africa, Canada, Norway, Cyprus, and so on. And then the highlight was probably Iraq in 2000 and um five six okay um and then i got out worked for church for a year went to seminary then got it uh, then i was an assistant pastor for three years then i got invited to plant in london um and i was convinced that having launched that church and having led it for eight nine years that would be me for the rest of my life mm. and I would I would boast proudly from the pulpit about you know I'm I'm here you know Croydon till I die Croydon was the name of the the region of London where we were and when you get dogmatic in my experience <laughs> that's when the Lord can sometimes you know come in with other plans and we'd had a couple of years of uh, very intense lockdowns my wife's American uh, we met at college married when I left the army. And the time had really come for me to take care of her. She'd put in a good shift my side of the pond, about 17 years from when she first came over. And so the time had come for us to be closer to her family and her parents. Um, so I, I took this job, uh, which is what we're doing here now in Knoxville, Tennessee. And two weeks ago, we planted. So our little baby is two weeks old. Emmanuel Church, Knoxville, enox.org is the name of the church. And having having had about a year of not actively being the pastor in a in a local church um be between the church in london and this one launching two weeks ago i just feel amazing like privilege and almost relief again at the at the fulfillment of getting to be a local church pastor because i just find it you know exhausting and stressful but at the same time deeply fulfilling and exhilarating and a privilege Wow. So, um, that's what we're doing. Um, we've got two boys aged seven and 11. Okay. Um, they're both adopted. We love adoption. Um, we also got a special heart for special needs and, and we're pushing special needs ministry quite heavily in our church. And we've got a golden retriever called Charlie. <laughs> so does that fill in the picture a bit more? That's a couple of paragraphs. Wow. That's exciting though. So, Congratulations on the two-week uh, anniversary of the plant. That's that's remarkable. Yeah. And I like your comment about when you get dogmatic, the Lord has a way to show you, well, maybe not. So yeah. Croydon became Knoxville is, is what happened exactly in your case. Right. Yeah. Exactly right. Well, I knew uh, I had heard your podcast, uh, a little bit of it with Keith, um, and you and I had communicated by email. So I lost the accent. I had no idea there's an accent there, and I'm like, Hey, this guy ain't from around here. And uh, I'm from the deep south, you can probably tell. But, uh, you know, you guys with the accents, like Sinclair Ferguson, I've got some other British British friends, brothers. Uh, yeah. You sound immediately more holy because of that accent. I don't know if you're aware of that impact that it has on American ears, but you immediately are more massive southern twang. I just put this on. <laughs> this is just an act. Oh, well, it exudes piety i can just tell you this podcasts make me sound smart <laughs> oh well no because i've got your book here and you definitely are so it, there's no no issue of uh, 
accent to it. Before we, uh, before we start discussing your book, which I, I do definitely want to talk about, that's, mm-hmm. that's what we're here for. I want to ask you one of the standard bud zone questions. You kind of hinted at that. Uh, and what's amazing is that your book, which we'll get into, actually gives a technical and theological answer to the question I'm, I'm going to pose to you. But it is this, why are you a Christian? How did it come about? You said you were born in, in a Christian family and that you, yeah. you sat under. Was there ever a time in your life where you didn't just think you were a Christian? Um, I thought I was a Christian until one night when I was about 12, when I heard a talk on the gospel. And it was just a simple explanation of the cross and I think I realized that I had been just nominal up to that point. Um, Looking back, I was very self-righteous. I had a lot of knowledge. Um, I was living a double life of of being really naughty, as Brits would say, bad, don't know what you would say, um, away at boarding school, and then being a good little church boy at home on weekends. And then one night, you know, this, this talk broke me and there was no new information for me, but that was the night the Holy Spirit really convicted my heart of sin and kind of showed me over the cliff of eternity. And I looked down and I realized, okay, like I was just very deeply convicted, repented, put my trust in Christ. And yeah, like by God's grace, I've never really been away from the Lord since. Obviously, you know, the, the journey of discipleship is never just smoothly upwards without setbacks but i've never um had a prolonged time running from the lord uh ever since i was 12 that was the, the beginning of the journey for me wow that is amazing that's uh that's wonderful and and that's you know like you've got here in the title of your book the subtitle every believer's biography well this is this is how the Lord works. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He regenerates. We, we move into sanctification, which we'll get to. And, and that's not always a rocket shot straight up. It's, you know, yeah. you, you five steps forward and a couple back. And, yeah. and, and it's always incumbent on us to, to participate faithfully. And, you know, we, we're not good at doing that. Yeah. But he's always faithful. And uh, yeah. Amen. That's, that's the wonderful thing. So it's funny you you told me you were going to ask how I became a Christian, and you're right. The book kind of says it. So my answer could have been, well, yeah, my testimony began before the beginning of the foundation of the world when there was this thing called the eternal covenant, and then then uh, God foreknew me, and then I was a yeah <laughs> so yeah. You can you can answer it from God's point of view or our point of view, I suppose, can't you? Yeah. Well, I was really kind of looking for the the personal. Yeah. yeah. Here's how it happened to me. Yeah, because your book is a, a theological explanation. But, you know, and I've read this. It's wonderful, and we're going to encourage everybody to go out and get it. But, you know, you, you talk about the, from before the foundation of the world, but you didn't mention anything about looking down that tunnel of time and seeing that you were going to make that decision. And how, how did you miss that? Well, <laughs> come on. <laughs> That's like standard fare, much of the church today. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Now, the book, again, the title is From Everlasting to Everlasting, Every Believer's Biography. What, what you have done here is write a really unique devotional book. But as I read it, it's not like any other typical devotional book that you might see on a store shelf. Or I don't, We don't have Christian bookstores anymore, I guess. But most of the time, I think when people 
consider devotional books, it's it's not this caliber of thing. It's more pietistic. It's more uh, kind of emotionalistic, uh, really this private inward. And there's not a lot, it's all about sort of making you feel good. And here's a little one line prayer you can make. And there's a scripture verse at the top or whatever. That's not what this is. This, this is some serious theological doctrinal teaching that you've woven through what is a 30 chapter book, couple of, you know, a few pages per chapter, one for each day. But it's all doctrinal, and it's about largely the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. But here was my question. As I read this, I'm thinking, did this guy set out to write a book on soteriology, on, on how we're saved, and then come up with the idea of making it a devotional? Or was it the other way around? Because it works wonderfully. How, how did you get the idea to make that a framework for a devotional book. You're right. The idea of it being devotional was secondary, but I, I'm a pastor by instinct. So I'm quick to apply, quick to illustrate. Um, and I believe that all theology should be devotional and all theology should be pastoral. So it really set out to be a book about the Ordo Salutis. Um, I'm a big picture guy. I always looking for kind of what's the paradigm, you know, what, what's the, what are the boundaries, what's the structure um, when I'm playing with ideas and exploring ideas. And then I suppose it, it became more explicitly devotional as I realized, look, if, if we sort of start unpacking the traditional seven, eight, nine stages of the Ordo Salutis and, and breaking them down into smaller bits and filling bits in between, we've got about 30. Well, that's perfect for days of the month. But I'm glad you've noticed as well that it's not one of these sort of hallmark card, individualistic, subjective, cotton candy things. It's meant to be quite substantive with yes. theological heavy lifting, which is why in the introduction I suggest, look, readers might want to take two days over each day. Um, there, there are a bunch of footnotes. Um, there's ideas which, at least for me personally, I find do kind of stretch and squeeze my brain a bit. And it's good to just let some of that, you know, marinate um, before moving on too quickly. Well, I, I think that is wonderful. I like that comment that all theology should be devotional, but it needs to be devotional in the way that, that you've done it here, where it is not that subjective thing. It's It starts with objective truth. So the book is, I mean, it's all grounded in Scripture. You're quoting you know, Puritans and, and Reformed theologians, and but it's all grounded out of Scripture, so you've got objective truth and you're expounding, and you're very gifted at writing in a way that makes a what could be seen as a very difficult topic very easy to understand. But for a lot of believers, a lot of people, you know, sitting in the pews, some of this they've never heard, and it's new to them. So you you've done it in a way where it's sort of incremental, and you're building the case across mm. the entire spectrum of what we would refer to technically as soteriology, but you've you've framed uh the book around ordo salutis tell us what is the ordo salutis what what do we mean by order of salvation um just to go back half a step quickly sure i, I love what you've also just said a big part of my heart is yes substantive theological heavy lifting but in the same breath making it accessible and some of the i spoke about this at length with keith on his podcast some of the 
writers I really enjoy and admire most have that gift for taking deep, complex subjects and sort of unpacking them just in a way that makes them available to maybe, um, yeah, not, you know, non-academic people like me. And I'm like I said, I'm a big fan of illustrations and applications to really bring these things down to land in our lives. Yeah. Sorry, I just yeah wanted to. Pick no, up well, you've done that. I mean, you can see that. folks can't see That's it behind me, but book. some of the stuff I, I you pick up a John Owen. <laughs> you know, I've got the yeah. works of John Owen. I love John Owen. What what a brilliant guy. But he's one of those fellows that writes on an issue, and you can start on the first page of a chapter at the first paragraph. And it seems like you go three pages before you ever get to the period <laughs> from yeah. what he started. Yeah. Now, the yeah. content is exceptional. You, you really have to spend time with it to digest what his various arguments are. And it's less accessible, even though he's a guy that we would you know, turn to as, as sound and solid and orthodox. But what you've been able to do is take that kind of thing and put it in, a, in an understandable, digestible format that is is uh it it got to be incredibly helpful to people who would take this and use it not merely as a devotional but as a as a kind of study guide on soteriology so i appreciate that brother it was really it was um great for me to write it for myself as a discipline having to simplify concepts and break them down without losing anything without dumbing them down um so I, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you found it to be like that too. But I would guess that it, it is because you've stood in a pulpit that you mm-hmm. have the ability to kind of process things that way. Uh, it's different yeah. reading than, than preaching. I understand that, but you can sort of sense that pastoral tone and, um, that, that sort of proclamation orientation because yeah. you're trying to get it to apply and for people to understand the application Exactly. And I, I think not just um, from preaching in the past, but just hundreds of hours spent sitting down with people in my congregation, whether it's an assistant pastor or the church I've planted in London or, or since. Um, I've just found these doctrines to be incredibly practical. You might think something like the eternal covenant, you know, so esoteric. How could that ever be relevant to the fact that my 10 year old is crashing out of school and my marriage is on the rocks and I'm struggling financially you know but it is all of these doctrines are really pastorally applicable um and so i suppose it was a book that wanted to to really celebrate and and spread you know that well it it forces us to do which i think was it spurgeon a british guy you probably know that name who said preach the gospel to yourself every day well this is what you're doing i mean this is in depth and detail with meat to it that uh that is inexhaustible, really. But go, let me go back to the question yeah, about so what question about or, order salutis. What, what do we mean by that? Uh, it's a Latin phrase that means literally order of salvation. Um, I think it didn't start to be used until 1700s, Lutheran theologians, but it's really always been clearly on display in the Bible. And it's this step-by-step progression that God lays out for us He's a God of order. Things don't happen randomly. He has infinite, perfect wisdom. And the Order of Saludus describes how he chose with, with beautiful, graceful order and wisdom 
to to save us and and the multiple stages contained in that so you you in your book uh, early on i guess maybe it was in the introduction you kind of break it out into nine categories that you that you then sort of discreetly handle over the course of a 30 day yeah devotional period you've got election which on the bud zone that's not you know calvin election is not a bad word election calling regeneration conversion justification reconciliation which i guess what you what you write in there about reconciliation really another term would be adoption people understand yeah. it as adoption sanctification perseverance and glorification is it your impression that the church at large as best as you can evaluate it is the church at large largely unfamiliar with ordo salutis it's just a, an abstract theological concept that really like you just said doesn't really have any impact on me yeah i don't um feel i have enough experience to speak with authority about the church at large but i i do know that in all of the various specific contexts i've been in over the last 15 or how many years I've been in full-time ministry, yeah, I, people sort of look at you funny when you talk about these, you know, th- th- this being a cohesive um, set of stages that that flow into each other and are meant to be viewed as a package. Yeah, and I've always had just a lot of fun and excitement and joy in explaining it to people, um, and I guess I got to do that in the book. Yeah. But, but yeah, to answer your question, I, I in my limited experience, I, I guess a lot of Christians view this as kind of a like a, a bonus round for the ivory tower guys or guys with too much time on their hands who, who like to read or something. Whereas it's very practical and down to earth. Oh. Otherwise, God wouldn't have. It's it's relevant and useful and needed. Otherwise, God wouldn't have bothered telling us about it. Exactly. Exactly. The um... The one thing in particular I wanted to ask you about, like I said, the book has 30 chapters. You, you're dealing across the the whole scheme. Uh, scheme is a bad word, but the whole process of, of salvation and yeah. all those discrete categories, uh, and you bring them all together. There was one that I really that I really liked, and it was day 23, and I have it marked here, and I have all kinds of highlights on it because I'm like, wow. In, in my experience, I don't think most Christians understand this. And what you're dealing with is the issue of Christian ministry. You put in there this, this statement, being active in ministry is an authenticating mark of a person who is truly saved. So we're in the, we're in the category of sanctification. Here's what it looks like having yeah. been through all these uh, discrete episodes of salvation. Now we're at sanctification. Uh, and you're saying being active in ministry is an authenticating mark of a person who is truly saved. Now, Paul tells us that the, the ministers of the church are to be about the business of edifying saints for the purpose of ministry. Uh, you know, Peter, Peter says that we're uh, a royal priesthood. And you give this wonderful outline of this this kind of ministry that is really required of every saint. But most of us, I think, just the average pew sitter, which I am, mm. most of us tend to think that, well, ministry is what you guys do. 
in the pulpit and in your study. And, and I'm just not really called to do those kinds of things. Do you think there's, there's too much of a misunderstanding of the believer's duty for ministry? Do you think that the believer that most believers tend to sort of make this dichotomy that ministry is for the professionals and I, yeah, I suppose so. Um, again, I, I find it hard to generalize, but in my various contexts in the past, and and probably especially at the moment here in the Bible Belt, Knoxville, Tennessee, I do bump into this kind of unspoken assumption a lot that you know church is a a consumer activity people w- wouldn't say that but i kind of that's the yeah. ethos that i yeah. pick up they turn up to receive from the professional who's the pastor or the staff team the service that they would like so they 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 sit in the congregation like they're sitting in the the stands of a stadium the seats and they watch the professional sort of perform and it's if it's high quality enough They'll stay and they'll keep giving their custom. They'll keep giving financially and and turning up. Um, And then they go away again. And so they've had ministry done to them. They've had their sort of, I guess, spiritual bucket filled up and off they go into the week. And, you know, obviously the the biblical pattern is so, so different. Yeah. And it's that we are the guys, the the, the rank and file pew sitters um, are are on the front line. They are the athletes on the pitch. They are the performers, if there are any performers. And and the guys who have a high profile, like the, the pastors and the staff members of a church, they're just the water boys. You know, they're the medics, the, the coaches, the guys on the sidelines and tracksuits with clipboards. They're not on the front line. The real place of privilege and the, the most sacred place at all is, is the rank and file, like foot soldiers. Like I say, the, 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 the focus in the stadium in this picture um as opposed to the spectators so it's just a different you know a different paradigm i mean one of the key places where you get that not the only would be ephesians 4 ephesians 4 11 and 12 yeah equip the saints for the work of ministry so it's the saints it's christians who do the work of ministry not some guy who went to seminary he's just an equipper the saints who do the work of ministry they're the real deal who get equipped they're on the front line well, when I read this chapter, I'm thinking, you know, this guy has got enough meat in this one chapter, which is really relevant. I mean, the church is all about being relevant nowadays, you know, the visible <laughs> church. But you've got enough meat in this. This could be your next book, okay? Just dealing with this because I, I, I just want to hit the highlights. People need to understand how you're equipping through what you're teaching here in this book which is not just some mere devotional book. You write, here are some of the things that Scripture tells us about ministry, not professional ministry, but the ministry that is the duty, the responsibility of of a believer. You put, you have been equipped for ministry, and, and you comment on all of these categories. You've been equipped for ministry. You've been authorized for ministry. You've been given the standard for ministry. You have been given the example for ministry. You have been given brothers and sisters who need your ministry, and you are responsible and accountable for your ministry, and you will be rewarded for your ministry. I'm just telling you, like you just said, in the Deep South, where almost everybody you run into is a Christian, I mean, this this is my turf. I grew up in yeah, this. Yeah. Um, they don't know this. 
So you've got a book there, brother. You the, you go to ch- day twenty three and flesh it out a little bit more, well, and that would that. be I incredibly helpful that. because uh, those points mm. largely are not being taught. So that that's incredible. I've only been here a year, and and you will know the culture better than I. And that is that's good to know. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I wrote this in England well over a year ago now, with a, a different a different context, but that is that is good to hear. Thank you. Well, that was, I was going to ask you that just kind of in, uh, in general, how long did it take you to write this? You've got all kinds of endorsements here. You've got Derek Thomas on the front, but, but how long did it take to put this together? Uh, a long time. Yeah. I can't remember exactly how long, but the reason is that we have two crazy boys because of COVID lockdowns, they were homeschooled. Uh, one of them was being homeschooled anyway. And we lived in a small house in London, and there was a lot of noise. I was basically writing it in in kind of three minute increments. <laughs> well, in between tearing my hair out, stopping fights, and um, yeah, just helping around the house and um, block out noise, and also while while pastoring a church, you know, while writing yeah. sermons and um, doing pastoral counselling and visiting people. But I took heart from the fact that in church history. You know, I, I was told this at, at seminary, uh, some of the greatest works, you know, the, the institutes and um, Luther's and Calvin's commentaries and things were written not as you would, as you might assume, in perfect conditions with sort of air conditioned libraries and limitless resources available and, 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 and with the writers in good health and personal security and, you know, they were written with the writers in all sorts of angst and on the run for their lives and in hiding and without access to the libraries that they probably would have wanted and with ill health and, you know, God's strength does work through human weakness. Oh, amen. That's absolutely right. You know, that that provokes me to remember, and I don't know the story fully enough to, to coherently tell it, but Jonathan Edwards the American theologian instrumental with Whitfield and all in the great awakening, you know, riding horseback and he had all these just little torn pieces of paper and he would stop yeah. because something would, he, he's thinking and he'd yeah. stop and jot that down. And so it was, it was not like I'm, I'm, I'm going to my office. I'm going to write a 200 page book. It was all the haphazard incremental kind of things that suddenly the Lord brings back to focus for them. And, and it ends up being, you know, a more thorough, um, exposition, mm. you know, they, yeah. they write a book. Uh, yeah, that, that's interesting. You've got, uh, I mean, there's just so much in this. I, I, I want to talk about whatever you want to talk about, but y- you break it out into, um, I mean, you're talking about the eternal covenant. You mentioned that foreknowledge, election, providence, the, the, the call, internal call, external call. I mean, all of these things, that are so so crucial that if you're a genuine believer, you've participated in, and you may not know it, but there yeah. was there was a quote that I wanted to to read, and it actually is not your quote. It is from the pastor Benjamin Verbacek, I guess. Yeah, Verbacek that wrote the foreword, mm-hmm. and I thought mm-hmm. after I read the foreword after I read the book, and I went back to okay, what this guy say? Well, here's what he says. He said. Um, As I read the Bible, I learn that not only does God save his people from their sins, but he also intends for Christians to understand their salvation. 
to understand that they were lost but now are found. Our practice to belief in God's eternal plan to save us, to make us more like him, and to one day make every wrong right provides so much of what a Christian's peace and joy in a world full of angst. This is not to say that when we're confused about aspects of our salvation, we are necessarily any less saved, but it is to say that when we lack understanding of the riches of God's redemption, we will lack joy and probably also obedience. Hmm. That is profound. Yeah. And, and it's what you've done out of, out of looking at the Ordo Salutis from scripture and from this rich heritage of theology that, um, that accomplishes that, but it's the issue of obedience. Yeah. Could you speak to that? How, how does understanding how God saved me affect my ability to obey? You, you mentioned that, you know, maybe I'm having a bad marriage or my child is having problems at school. Those are real application things. But w- what about my obedience? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I hadn't thought about that particularly. Um, I think the Bible presents the obedience not of a, a legalist or someone under the Mosaic Covenant, but uh, the obedience of people under the New Covenant like us. Yeah. As, um, the outworking of a personal relationship with our God. We're not just obeying laws, we're obeying a being. We're obeying our Father, and therefore it's not just a matter of duty, but delight. And the Ordo Salutis is all about God's self-revelation. So I suppose one broad brush way of looking at it is to say the better I understand theology, and in particular, how God has saved me, the better I will know God, the better I'll know more about my father, I'll have a closer relationship with him, I'll appreciate him more, enjoy him more, be more fearful of him in a way that I should be with appropriate humility. And then all of those things are what overflow in obedience. If the more I love my father, the less I will be chasing after idols instead of him. You know, the more I fear him, the less I will be fearing men instead of him and so on. Does that I think that that no, that's tremendous. Yeah, because this isn't this is efficacious grace. Mm. Um, yes, th- that yeah. you that you're talking about. Um, yeah, we're not doing it out of a a uh, a coercive fear of God. We're doing it out of a reverential fear of God yeah. and uh, knowing more about Him, which for us starts at at our salvation. Now, there's things going on we don't see, and and we mature in the faith, and as we study and learn Scripture, all of this comes into view, just like you've you've uh, outlined it in the book. But um, it, it's that issue of grace and the bigness of God and the goodness of God. Yeah. And the more the more big we see Him as being, and the more good we realize He is, the more we want to obey Him. The more we'll realize it's less that we have to and more that we get to. And when the going gets tough and temptation flares up and we're stressed and distracted, like the bigger and closer God is in our minds, yeah, surely Benjamin Verbacek is right to say that, you know, obedience and also joy, as Benjamin says. Yeah, yeah. Will, will, you know, be easier, come quicker. Yeah, I think... What this helps me see almost in the way I, I, I thought about it is, yeah, the joy, the obedience. We know this is this is grace. We know this is gift. The faith that we have is a gift. Uh, the repentance that we're granted is a, is a gift. Yeah. But it, it almost made me think of when you read Psalm 119 
and you see David just extolling the law of God. You mentioned Mosaic. How can he do that? How, how can you love these principles in the law? Well, it's it's not in a pharisaical way. It's not legalism, like you said. Yeah. Um, it, it's the effect of grace. Yeah, where we see the beauty and the and the power and the love that's exuded by uh, by not merely the law, but the the entire corpus of Scripture. And I, and I think the the relational aspect is so key, even in Psalm nineteen. Oh, you, sorry, you were talking about Psalm one. Psalm one nineteen, but one nineteen too. Yeah, as well. David also extols the the beauty and majesty of the law, but then it becomes very personal at the end. He starts with creation, general revelation, then moves to the special revelation, the, mm-hmm. the law, and then the, the psalm closes with him just talking face to face with this God with whom he has a relationship, and. I mean that that has to be just so fundamental to us being joyful and obedient, and I I think you know all of the Bible's theology, including in this particular area of the Order Salutis, is is there for us to to get to know and worship and be in awe of and love and fear and follow more joyfully our living God. Amen. It's not academic theology. Yeah, no, not ivory tower. You can take it to the ivory tower. But the, and and the, I don't mean to keep disparaging. Like we no, mean, I know you're not. No, I don't. The, I don't. The Don Carsons, what an amazing gift to the church. Yeah, the Don Carsons and and you know the other. I, I got a shelf full of commentaries here, um, but you know that's a specific gift, and that they are there to serve us as we get on in our day to day Monday morning jobs. You know, on the front line. Yeah, guys like you, you have a job, don't you? Oh yes. Oh yeah. Have a real job, unlike me. You, you're. Like- <laughs> you have a real job. Uh, you have one that's a calling. Well, everybody has a calling, uh, and so we won't go into that. All right, let me ask you this about writing the book. As you're studying in these three minute episodes of writing that you have when you're not being a dad and breaking up fights and whatever you're doing. Yeah. But as you're studying for this, were there any particular doctrinal aha moments for you where? something like you hadn't thought of hmm. comes together and 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 you're just awed over it because the whole book is exuding this awe and and reverence and and really the joy like you were just talking about but but as you're studying for this I know you're seminary trained you you know you, you've been a Christian since you were 12 grown up in it but was there any particular area that really just lights went on for you that you had not really seen before to be honest lots lots yeah, yeah. <laughs> um i mean just looking at the the index page now that um the eternal covenant and also foreknowledge uh, areas where i just really i felt like i was back in seminary after you know 10 15 years it was a it was a joy to do deep dives again into some some pretty academic stuff so that i could Try and bring it out, and make it make it accessible. Elections, one of those issues that I think reform pastors are always having to gently, patiently coax their people into, you know, humbly accepting and receiving. So I've I've preached on it a lot and had discussions about it a lot over the years. So that that came pretty quickly. Um, Providence, I mean, Romans eight twenty eight and our family is is huge and indebted to to john piper you know one of the big themes of his theology over the last few decades so so i'm never 
I never failed to be stunned by the truth of providence, but there wasn't really new material yeah. to my thinking there. Yeah. Um, I had no idea where I would go with that day six conception and physical life. And it just, it's just fascinating. I mean, God is just, his fingerprints are everywhere. Everything is meaningful. And I, I really enjoyed just exploring some unexpected avenues of truth and applications of that truth um, in day six. So, I mean, I could go all the way down to day 30 and, and, and give you that little commentary, but basically, yeah, a lot, I found it really interesting myself <laughs> to, to research and write because it wasn't all in my back pocket. Well, Quite a bit of it was pastorally, but um, yeah, lots wasn't. Well, it, it's, it's wonderful that um, you've, you've, it's just really a remarkable way to to put doctrine in a in an accessible way that I I just have have you run across a book like this anywhere not not with the well, topic not with the doctrine no 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 I'm not I'm I'm uh I'm saying that, what a remarkable idea I'm I'm British so I'm really struggling to take these compliments oh well it, it, it's it's uh it's just incredibly unique and um you're dealing with serious, serious theology. Yeah. Because I bet that even though I would, I would read it because I read all the time. If you had just written a book and, and Keith had called me and said, Hey, this guy wrote this, this book on soteriology. You need to, you need to read, I'd get it and I'd read it and I'd love it, but I don't think it would be as accessible as the way you've done it here. Well, I think that, Uh, that was part of my thinking of, of saying, Hey, if I'm around the 30 mark in terms of sections of thought, you know, progressions, 30 days in a month, part of my thinking for, for going ahead and, and turning it into that monthly devotional was to, again, just to try and encourage people to be able to be, be confident in just any, any Christian who's never been to seminary, maybe hasn't even been to university you know, to feel that this is within your reach. Like, you know, any Christian would feel confident about being able to cope with a daily devotional, I would hope. Mm-hmm. That, that's not asking a lot to say, hey, it's just a, a five-minute read, one chapter per day, you can do that. And it's got a little prayer at the end and a little meditation and um, some illustrations and applications. And I guess by putting it in that format, I'm trying to put these majestic bottomless truths on just a low shelf easy to reach yeah well i like that and i was going to mention that each each day you do have uh, kind of a commentary on the topic specifically that you're sort of drilling down into but then you also have a prayer and then you have uh, you know a kind of a meditation is what you call it but you know think about this sometimes in a couple of them i've seen where a meditation was a scripture verse some of them is just a thought that we need to think on the one that struck me, the chapter, the um, one on Christian ministry, you know, the meditation is what, what serving needs are you aware of in your church or in the lives of believers around you, regardless of what you think your gifts are, what would it take practically for you to start ministering in these ways? So you're provoking people to think in, in not these sort of elevated ivory tower ways, but in real life, how can I help that guy? I see, a, I yeah. see an opportunity or I see a need or I see a, yeah. and, and I don't think, I think we're so very myopic and, and sinfully self-centered often 
that we, we're not looking out there to fulfill that second great commandment, you know, love others. Yes. Uh, so the, the prayers uh, are, are wonderful, and they're in each chapter, and you've got that kind of meditation, that kind of suggestion on think about the implications of what you've just kind of delved into doctrinally. Yeah. And all of the meditations are questions, and the point is to then leave the ball in the reader's court. Say, look, come on, you've, you've just taken in some information. You've got to do something with it. Yeah. So, you know, over to you. What are you how are you going to respond? Well, you've done the pastoral thing. You've prodded, you've, you've put the truth out there, and you've prodded them, and you've made recommended a- application, but, you know, neither you nor me or anybody's Holy spirit. So he has to, he has to work and we have to be diligent to participate, uh, yeah. in obedience with that. So let's say you're at a, uh, you know, at a conference and you've got a table set up to sell your book and you've got like 60 seconds to tell people why they need to buy your book. Mm. You've kind of already done that, but I suppose I would say, look, this is your story. Uh, every believer's biography. Do you know your own story? from eternity past into eternity future, because it's very, very rich and deep and it's fascinating. And the better you understand it, um, the the more you will be able to know God and understand yourself and live accordingly and live with fulfillment and confidence and joy and courage and comfort. Um, You really need to understand your own story that God's written for you. That's what I would say. Amen. That's wonderful. Now, the book came out earlier this year. 2022, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. How has it been? What, what's the response been like? I, I mean, anecdotally, I, I think it's been selling fairly well. Um, Christian focus for the publisher. Uh, a nice problem has been that the stateside sales ran out of copies. So oh, I think they're wow. shipping more over and they're flying more over um, as well to tide sales over until the shipment arrives. Um, but anecdotally, I hear that, yeah, people are finding it helpful and, and it's selling. Good. Okay. I don't have any numbers. Oh, yeah. I'm not asking for numbers, but are you generally satisfied with the responses you're getting? You know, yeah. Um, it's not going to, I go to that saying, I, I didn't do it for the money and I don't, I won't be getting meaningful money from it, but I am keen for it to get out there just to strengthen the church. So yeah, I'm, you know, I'm really willing and and pleased to get to do podcasts like this, not for the book's glory or my glory, but because I just believe in these truths. They're not mine. They're God's. And I just want them out there. Yeah. Um, so I'm pretty happy that the book is selling. Yeah. Good. That's wonderful to hear. Well, I, I prompted you on my kind of closing questions. Um, and, and I understand that we discussed beforehand that you don't like kind of making generalizations and we're all in a sort of unique sort of yeah, segment yeah. of the church. But I, I did want to ask you, is there anything in particular that concerns you about the church as you look at it, uh, the church at large? And then is there anything in particular that really encourages you about what you see going on, what the Lord is doing in the church uh, now? And maybe especially since, you know, 2020 with all the COVID things, uh, any, any observations you'd want to make? I mean, where I am right now in in East Tennessee, uh, such a beautiful part of the world, but a lot of nominalism. One big encouragement is Christians here seem to be very warm hearted and generous and kind and 
and sort of uh, activistic. And that might be partly national personality. You know, you Americans are, are, are doers, uh, entrepreneurial, quick to act. Um, but I think there's a, a healthy spiritual kind of, for those who are really living it and not just going through the motions of mm -hmm. cultural Christianity, there does seem to be a great energy and an instinct to, to be on the front foot. And I mean, that's been refreshing coming from London in in very postmodern, post-Christian, post-everything Britain. Yeah. Where where Christians are embattled, definitely embattled. And I know probably some Christians, even in the Bible, but here feel like they're embattled. Like you're not, not compared to London. And even London has it easy compared to mainland Europe especially the Catholic countries, France, Spain, Italy, and even they have it easy compared to many other swathes of the world. Yeah. Africa and Asia, where there's horrific persecution. Um, so it, it has been refreshing to see Christians here just just optimistic and um, and bold and joyful and willing and anxious to get out and serve and do stuff and be generous as well financially. That's been a Philip for me, positively. Good. Well, I was going to ask you uh, about, was there some sort of vivid difference between uh, England mm. and even the continent? Because what, you know, I, I hear, you said it, it's post-Christian, it's post-modern, it's post-everything, and that it's a very dark place. And that had been the place where Christianity really exploded. This is this is how the Lord sort of has done it historically is is through, you know, is through Europe and then uh, to the states and and you see all the great mission work that has has come out of the U.S. and out of out of uh, England. But you know now we just hear it's a completely dark place. It's it's but there are spots where the faith has never been lost. It's and, but do you see it coming back? Do you see the Lord at work in a favorable way, bringing people into the church in a salvific way, not in a superficial nominal yeah, way, yeah. which you spoke to, but I mean, the, the church I left a year ago, um, which I, I still miss very much. Beautiful church, Redeemer, Redeemer Croydon. People can look it up. Um, C-R-O-Y-D-O-N, redeemacroydon.org, um, I think is is really vibrant and is seeing, um, they, they had four baptisms recently, which is like an amazing event for a British conservative evangelical church. Yeah. Um, adult, adult baptisms. So I think you've got these great swathes of darkness and there's a lot of very um, far gone, liberalism uh in in most denominations there but and then you've got these pinpricks of a very very bright light which are vibrant and um have you know good fruit to show for it but in the context of a country of over 60 million mm -hmm. yeah you've got these great swathes of darkness at the same time so it's a weird sort of juxtaposition uh, and i can't really speak for the continent as much i know that Catholicism and superstition and secularism not only you know predominate statistically over places like France, Germany, Italy, but have a very dark and um, sort of spiritually heavy 
you know create a, a lot of a very dark spiritually heavy atmosphere yeah. a lot of spiritual opposition a lot of the occult there's a lot of the occult in in london especially south london uh croydon a lot of witchcraft but you know god's gospel is unstoppable and goes on and it flares up in some parts of the world while it seems to dampen down in others but then move on a few decades or centuries which is nothing in god's timeline yeah and yeah. the situation is very different um well, I, you know, that's the thing. We, we can be very myopic and, and you know, I, I talk with folks, you know, here in the States and everything, oh, it's all doom and gloom. And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, we're, we're looking at a very narrow sliver, both of time and of placement, because you hear some of these stories coming out of China about how yeah. the church is just exploding underground illegally. Yes. Uh, according to, so the Lord is at work there. You you hear about it in in Africa. You hear about it in the Middle East of yes. all places. Yeah. So we have to be able to sort of back up and look at the whole forest and not just a few little trees that we may yeah. be most proximate yeah. to, um, because right. the the gospel is the power of God for salvation, and it is and it is going out there, and it is and there are souls being saved, and and right. his elect are 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 being uh, regenerated it's it's wonderful All i right. don't think i've uh, answered the other half of your initial question you you said uh, what is encouraging about the church from my perspective true and I about um just the optimism and energy and 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 joyful uh generosity of christians around where i'm i suppose on the other side i i sometimes get concerned about a a theologically shallow christianity um, where doctrine is seen as kind of a almost a dirty word and doctrine divides, just give me Jesus kind of religion. Um, and also because gospel values have pervaded, especially the South historically in a wonderful, beautiful way. Um, a lot of people are just very nice people. And kind of the danger of that is that the church can start to want to be nice as opposed to be mission focused. So I, I see well-meaning kind lovely people start to get sucked into social action which makes me nervous about mission drift mm. uh, and not against social action necessarily but we've, we've got to remember that you know that the big picture and our specific god-given mission and not plow resources into things that take away from that which which non-christian dollars and non-christian time are plowing themselves into anyway yeah absolutely that's that's there a, would maybe be some concerns that's a good point and you know what that prompts me to think about um, here in the South. A lot of times with the nominal Christianity, what has happened is that the gospel, the the faith, the Christian faith, has sort of been reduced to moralism. And mm. you know, I'm I'm a good person. Maybe I'm not inherently a good, but but I'm I'm better than that guy. Yeah. And uh, I'm moral. I don't cheat on my wife. I don't whatever. Uh, and Christianity is moral, but it is not moralism. And uh, I think yeah. that's a particular problem that a lot of folks can't seem to distinguish. Um, so that's interesting. All right, well, sir, I have one other question, which I did not prompt you on, sure. that I always try to close with when I think about it, because I want to respect your time. But is there something I should have asked you that you wish I had asked you that I have not asked you and what would the answer, what would the question be? What would your answer be? What, what, would, you, what would you like to say 
or have asked of you? Brother, I, I don't think there's anything. You've asked some great questions and, and I, I hope my answers have been helpful. Um, I feel like, yeah, probably could have done better, but uh, you've been very kind and I guess people can judge for themselves. But like I said earlier, I'm, I'm just happy when these truths get out there, whether written by me or others. So I, I trust that listeners to your podcast will think about getting a copy and, you know, may it bless them. Well, I, I, I encourage everybody. I don't think you're going to see a huge spike, but you've had this opportunity for literally dozens of people to hear this, <laughs> this podcast. But folks need to go get this book. Um, what's the best place? Amazon is where I bought mine, but do you want to direct people elsewhere and in, in addition to Amazon? Amazon's, Amazon's probably easiest. The easiest? Okay. So the title, From Everlasting to Everlasting, Every Believer's Biography by Will Dobby, available on Amazon. I will put a link to um, the Amazon site for it uh, on the show notes for this episode. And encourage everybody to go get this. Is there another project on your plate? Is there another book that you are thinking about that you're working on? What What do you think is next? I know you're um, you're busy with the church plant, so that's a that's a very time consuming endeavor. I was going to say that's that's the main thing right now. That's front and center. Um, and like I said at the beginning, it is I'd forgotten what an amazing privilege it is like a fearful responsibility but a, an unbelievably fulfilling thing to to get to be teaching pastor in a local church and and emmanuel knoxville enox.org eknox.org we're small and humble and but we're just really happy and healthy by god's grace and excited so that's all consuming for me at the moment this little two-week-old church baby there's a couple of potential books one is on fitness Okay, um, as in you know, personal spiritual fitness, theological fitness, physical fitness yeah. to honor Lord, make the most of the bodies which He's given us and steward them well. Um, relational fitness. Um, there's this word that appears in Hebrews a couple of times. It, it um, is normally translated dull, but it more widely kind of relates to fitness. And you know, I'm ex-military. I I love keeping fit, and and I've seen the value of discipline in my life, not just physically, but in all areas. Yeah. Um. So I've I've been having some thoughts on that. Right now, I'm just thinking about Sunday sermon. To be honest. Excellent. Well, okay. So when uh, spiritual fitness, phys- when that fitness book comes out, you come back on, and we can we can talk I'd love about to, it, brother. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and I'm sure it'll convict me in one category or another, <laughs> but uh, I, I think that's that's interesting. Do you, are you thinking of it in a sort of uh, devotional kind of platform like you've done here? I I hadn't particularly. No, I, th- I think it would be less um, less intimidating in terms of it, its obvious like subject. Yeah. So I, I don't I don't think I would need to kind of break it down into a daily devotional for people to yeah. feel, okay, I could, I could read that. I just, yeah, I know that lack of urgency is partly personality thing. I'm, I'm an a generally quite an urgent, slightly intense guy, but even despite this being just my personality, I do think lack of urgency in this one very, very short life that we're living is absolutely criminal. And mm-hmm. that we need to, have our you know foot to the floor for the lord 
and and I know that that can be, go to the extent of being unhealthy. Um, and I've experienced burnout myself in the past. There's an awesome book written by Christopher Ash called Zeal Without Burnout. Um, and that is guarding against the unhealthy side of that, where you, you just drive yourself into the ground, which doesn't honor the Lord and also means that you're less useful yourself. Yeah. Um, if you break yourself. But at the same time, I just I do have a, a heart for people really spending themselves and being spent, to use Paul's language. Right. As opposed to coasting. And here in the South, the standard of living is just astronomically high and the weather's beautiful. And you guys might complain about the economy, but hey, compared to most of the rest of the world, mm. just price of groceries and everything and gas, the price of gas is insanely low um, for Americans compared to most of the rest of the world, mm -hmm. um, at least where I've come from. So there are loads of reasons why we could just kick back and that frightens me. And and so I feel I've got a book inside me saying to people just gently, lovingly, come on. Yeah. Keep pushing hard. It's not long. <laughs> We've know. got a mission. It's a race. It's a Get fight. Fit. It's a yeah. enjoy being fit, like relationally, theologically, spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally, in all of these different ways. They all the Bible has lots to say about all of those areas of you know how to be fit. And um I don't know, maybe that will come out in the next year or two. I think that's something. great. Paul says to Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, which yeah. is not restricted just to my spiritual thoughts. It's, yeah. It, yeah. it has uh, feet, it has feet and hands. Uh, yeah. It has implications. Well, sir, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to finally connect with you face to face uh, and to talk with you. And uh, I'll uh, leave the last word for you. Any, any closing comment? No, it's been a, a privilege. Thanks very much for having yes, me. Yes, sir. Thank you. I appreciate it. You are now leaving the Bud Zone. Thank you so much for listening. I would also encourage you to listen to a podcast that I happen to co-host with my pastor, Dr. Andrew Smith, called Truth For You. You can find Truth For You on the Christian podcast community. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, no doctrines have been harmed during the recording of this episode. God bless you.